Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host, Alejandro Rojas. Hello and welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio. This is your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I'm very happy to be here with you all today. Um, I want to start off with, sorry, uh, you know, a little bit of sad news, but I, um, someone who needs some help. As you all know, I started this show and I used to live in Denver, Colorado. So you can probably know where I'm going with this. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, a friend of mine, her daughter was involved with the shootings and actually a mutual friend of, of this friend of mine. In fact, I think I had Heidi on the show because she's a mutual friend of uh, Stan and Lisa Romanek. And in fact, you know, I had a show a year or two ago where I brought in just witnesses, just third parties who said they have uh, experienced something around Stan Romanek. I'm pretty sure she was on that show. Uh, But anyway, Heidi is just a beautiful person. If you're one of the Colorado people, you know who she is. She's a wonderful person, and her daughter is as well. And unfortunately, she was hurt really bad in the shootings the other day. Uh, why I mention this is because they could use some help. And if you go to the uh, UFO Think Tank Facebook or any of the Facebooks, including Stan Romanex, Lisa Romanex, my other Alejandro Rojas one, uh, my personal one, you'll be able to see some information there about Farah and how she's doing, an update. She's doing much better. It was actually really scary up until yesterday, really, and uh, now she's doing better. But you'll see a, a Donate Now button there uh, if you can help out. That would be wonderful. And... Uh, and, you know, especially for those of you who uh, know the family, you can go uh, see how they're doing. So uh, I just wanted to start off uh, and mention that. Otherwise, other news. Last week, I had mentioned the 25% off for radio listeners for the Cosmic Exploration Conference. So really, this is a huge discount. And... This is going to be your chance to register, so you'll want to do this. There's only like a little more than a week left because I'm doing this discount till the end of the month uh, to help get things rolling uh, as far as uh, things I need to get taken care of. So really, you're going to want to register as soon as possible. Uh, just use the code when you're checking out UTT. That is UTT, and, and that talks. It, I have updated a couple of them, and they're, of course, really exciting. For instance, uh, psychologist, Professor of Psychologist Ron Westrom is going to be talking about the sociology of hidden events. So essentially, this is really interesting, in the 1800s, there were meteors and meteorites that were, were happening, and uh, people were denying that that happened. Uh, you know, oh, that's not true. You know how. We all know how people can be. <laughs> Uh, that uh, denying this this phenomena's existence. So he examined that. He examined more recent demonstrations of phenomena's which were proven to be real and, and how society reacted. And then, of course, he examined the UFO phenomena. 
and uh, the state of denial we're in. And this is a gentleman who uh, himself does, even though he's a Harvard graduate, uh, got his Ph.D. at Harvard. He's, you know, believes that there is something to this phenomena. And I he essentially subscribes to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But uh, he's going to talk about how that relates to today and where we are in the whole process of ex- accepting, you know, hidden events. So this is going to be extremely fascinating amongst the other talks, which, of course, will also be fabulous. In fact, Lee Spiegel is going to talk about something he never has. Uh, he was on the show, of course, last week. Uh, he's going to get into the details about um, the... UN initiative from the 70s because the UN actually was looking to do some uh, set up a UFO group. In fact, uh, with Granada, they actually passed the decision to set up a group. You know, Lee's talked about that part, but he's going to talk in detail about what the scientists uh, and the special witnesses involved had to say. So that's going to be really great. Um, let alone all the other great speakers, and a, and a very rare chance to meet this Belgian general, uh, De Brouwer, to talk about uh, the wave in the 90s. So lots of good stuff. Check out the website, CosmicEx.com, for the latest, and then go ahead and register. Use the code UTT, and you will get the phenomenal discount of 25%. So that's what's going on there. Otherwise, UFOs in the news... I've been so busy, and it feels like there's so much going on that uh, I haven't really noticed that there haven't really been too many news stories in the last week. In fact, this is one of the weeks with one of the fewest news stories uh, out there I've noticed. Uh, One of the news stories, at least something I wrote about on the Huffington Post, so you can be aware, is Thomas Jane. So Thomas Jane was the actor in The Hung TV series he was in. He was the lead in The Executioner. He played, played the, the comic book hero guy. He um, was the, what else was, was, was he in? He was in Deep Blue, if you saw that, with these sharks and uh, that killed people, essentially. Hello, uh, Cool J was on that movie, too. So this is a, a, he's a really big name actor. He's a great actor. He's a lot of fun in all the stuff that he's in. And uh, I think I told you guys about this before, how he's really into the topic and how he uh, retweeted my tweets or tweeted me, uh, you know, a while ago after the MUFON conference. So I wrote a little bit about that because he has tweeted the conference. So I've been in touch with him a little bit. He's excited about the conference. Uh, He was looking for something with uh, more scientists and academics. And uh, so was I, obviously. And that's why I put together the conference. So Thomas Jane hopefully will make it. He's going to be shooting a movie, of course, in the fall. Uh, busy guy hanging out with all the stars in Hollywood. But if he can, he's going to make it. And from what I hear from my friends, I told you guys last week at, about uh, a benefit that uh, L.A. MUFON and Orange County MUFON had for Dr. Roger Lear. And uh, Thomas Jane, I guess, showed up there So uh, to the L.A. one. Just to show you how interested he is in this topic, which he is very. So that's pretty exciting. We'll possibly, if not probably, have some movie stars at the conference. 
other news include, and uh, Lee Spiegel wrote about this, and here's another story in the Telegraph in the UK, and this is the Edinburgh University, which uh, they're talking about, you know, the stories read that they're offering a degree on alien life and making it seem like it's UFOs and aliens. Eh, it's actually a free course that you can take. And it is called An Introduction to Astrobiology and the Search for Extraterrestrial Life. So it does sound very, very fascinating. It sounds like a lot of fun. And it looks like, you know, some SETI stuff along with uh, the other science of searching for extraterrestrial life. But it doesn't look like it's so much a UFO oriented, uh, which would be kind of fun also, of course. Speaking of SETI, there is also a story in Forbes about a project to look for lasers. So essentially, these guys are looking for flashes. So they're thinking perhaps that an extraterrestrial civilization out there could be using lasers to communicate. And so we should look out there for some lasers and see if they're trying to communicate with us. Uh, this is an observatory in Sydney that they write about. And they write that actually in December 2008, they did have a spike that was anomalous. And the guy wrote down in the margins of, of the readout for this, is this ET? And uh, later when they went to look for this signal again, they were unable to find it. Thus, they concluded that uh, it. they dismissed it as spurious. This is the exact wording uh, the scientist uses. Because if they can't detect it again, they can't be for sure that it is repeatable and it is uh, extraterrestrial. So uh, they had to write that off. But a very interesting story by Forbes. You'll need to check that one out. And another story is about another English gentleman or an English academic. And this is out of London, Oxford. And uh, this is a scientist who says... Essentially, he's just saying, and uh, people are paying attention, you know, and it, it's kind of interesting. Just It's such a hot topic in academia and, uh, of course, in, on television and everywhere else. But he is saying that perhaps, or he, he bets that we will find life, possibly even intelligent life, within the next century. So he's saying that uh, most likely within the next century, we will discover life and even possibly intelligent. Of course, many of you who listen to the show will probably agree or, or at least are of the belief that uh, we'll probably just make that discovery much more recent than that in the near future. And of course, some of you believe that we've already made this discovery, and perhaps you yourself have made that discovery. And that would be very interesting. Email me the details, but uh, of course, uh, we have people on the show who uh, have, or at least do believe, they have met extraterrestrial civilizations themselves. And of course, that's uh, all very, very interesting. So that's some of the news. Of course, if you want to read more about the news, you can go to ufodailynews.com. And you can go to the UFO News Feed, and that's where you're going to see daily updates of uh, the headlines out there. 
or you will be able to uh, look at the news on the front page. Of course, that's updated occasionally, whereas uh, the news feed's updated every day. Another story out there, actually, has to do with our guest, who I forgot to tell you all about. And this is exciting. This is really cool. So last week, we did our little forum on Chase Brandon, the CIA guy. And uh, Grant Cameron talked about a gentleman named Robbie Graham. And, of course, I've talked about Robbie before also. And this is a gentleman uh, based out of the U.K. who runs a website called Silver Screen Saucers. And he is an expert on extraterrestrials and Hollywood and UFOs. So the whole Hollywood perspective. He even has... Uh, he's a doctoral candidate at the University of Bristol. So he's researching a Ph.D. in examining Hollywood's historical representation of UFOs and potential extraterrestrial life. So he's examining it in a sociological way. However, he uh, is a firm believer as well that there are um, it, it, there is something to the UFO phenomenon. It sounds like, and we'll talk to him in a minute, that he subscribes to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but is open to other ideas as well. So this is really interesting. He's an expert on Hollywood, which is great. And being an expert in Hollywood, he has actually been familiar with Chase Brandon because Chase Brandon was uh, CIA's entertainment liaison. Uh, which meant that Chase Brandon's job was to go work with movies and stuff like that. So we'll talk to him about that. We'll talk to him how he got onto this stuff. And we'll talk to him all about Hollywood and UFOs. And he's got a great story up now, which I, I, I tweeted and put up on the Facebook there, which uh, is a little bit about Thomas Jane, but also about other celebrities and UFOs and the kind of stuff I write about sometimes because it's really interesting to me. I think it's a lot of fun when the cool kids, are, as he says in his story, coming out of the closet on their UFO beliefs, which is happening more and more. What's going on here, people? So let's talk to Robbie about all of this exciting stuff. I am really excited to be able to talk to Robbie Graham from the UK and uh, the gentleman who runs Silver Screen Saucers. Hello, how are you? Hi Alejandro, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. I am really excited to be talking to you because, of course, we've uh, kind of emailed back and forth over the last probably couple years, and uh, oh. it's been a lot of fun. And there's been all this interaction, so it's always fun to finally be able to talk to someone live. Yeah, it's great. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. So, getting into a little bit of your background, you're currently a doctoral candidate, so you're working for your PhD, and this is for the University of Bristol at a uh, a very unique topic. So your PhD is actually going to be around Hollywood's uh, historical representation of UFOs and extraterrestrial life. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, that's that's the the topic. It's um, actually done through two different departments. It's done through the uh, film uh, department. And uh, it's also done through cultural studies. So I have two different um, supervisors, one to oversee the cultural dimension and, uh, and one to oversee the film uh, film side of things. So it's uh, it's kind of complicated. Um, 
and uh, it means I've got two people to answer to rather than one. Um, mm. So I have to justify things um, especially well. Um, but uh, no, it's great. It's uh, uh, it's been going on for a couple of years now. Actually, I'm currently in a one-year uh, requested uh, leave of absence from the PhD, uh, which they very kindly granted me in order to be able to write a populist book uh, on the subject of UFOs in Hollywood. Um, so uh, uh, Bryce Abel and I um, got in touch uh, last year, and we decided that we would start to work together on uh, on a project uh, look, looking at Hollywood and UFOs, um, which would be uh, dual-pronged. It would consist of a book, Silver Screen Sources, Sorting Facts from Fantasy in Hollywood's UFO Movies, uh, written by myself. Uh, and then that book, as it's being written, will be adapted by Bryce uh, for a potential TV documentary series, uh, which will share the name. Um, so this is something that's going to be developing over the next year or two. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully that's all going to come to fruition. The book's coming along nicely, and uh, I hope to have it finished by very early next year. Great. Well, that's really exciting, and he's a perfect guy to get in, uh, to partner up with on this. Um, however, I guess getting back to the University of Bristol, I would imagine that mm. this wasn't something in their catalog where you could choose to uh, go and do this, pursue this uh, um, degree. I would imagine you proposed well, it, and if so, how did they take yeah. that? What did they say? Well, that's how most PhDs work. I mean, with PhDs, it's generally the case that the student will propose uh, the idea, and uh, they will have to pitch it and sell it, essentially, to the department. Um, and if the department deems it to be viable, then it will get go ahead, and you can you can go ahead and, and write your thesis. Um, of course, you, as I said before, you you have to undergo lots of scrutiny during the writing process, planning process. I mean, you spend a whole year really just planning. Uh, planning what you're going to do uh, before you even put pen to paper, so to speak. Um, yeah, it was a, shall we say, slightly controversial topic, mm -hmm. um, UFOs, uh, for obvious reasons. And um, that said, I have had, you know, support. Um, I've had to really make clear that this is not necessarily a, uh, rather not strictly a, a, a thesis about UFOs. Uh, it's not looking at uh, it's not looking at solving the mystery of, of, of UFOs. It's not seeking an answer to the UFO riddle. Um, it's looking at Hollywood's representations of an objectively real phenomenon, regardless of what forces are behind that phenomenon. Um, and it's looking at how Hollywood ties that phenomenon to the idea of extraterrestrial life and visitation and the extent to which uh, Hollywood's representations of UFOs and ET life will actually impact our own perceptions and expectations of uh, of first contact. So those are the things I'm interested in. It's a largely cultural uh, study. Uh, at the same time, it does encompass the political dimension of the phenomenon as well, and it takes into account the government's long-standing historical interest in UFOs, uh, and looks at UFO secrecy, and it looks at government involvement in the filmmaking process and the extent to which uh, the Department of Defense and CIA have sought to influence the content of Hollywood's UFO theme productions. Right. And culturally, I mean, it, or at least especially from a, a film perspective, it seems to be a very valid topic because so many films are centered around this topic. 
exactly. There's been a boom, really, an explosion in the popularity of um, of UFO movies, uh, of, of uh, films that depict extraterrestrial visitation and first contact scenarios. In the past decade, since since really late 90s and, and, uh, and right through to present day with the likes of Battleship and Prometheus and The Watch, which is coming up, and many, many others, um, I've counted a, over 40 titles that meet the criteria um, for my PhD and that have been released just in the last 10 years, so 40 UFO movies, uh, major UFO movies. Those are the ones that have received theatrical release. I'm not looking at um, straight-to-video TV things. I'm looking at you know big, big budget mm-hmm. uh, or medium budget Hollywood productions. So just, as I say, it's been about 40 in the past decade. Uh, they're all listed on my blog, and uh, and I, I will be looking at all of those in, in the book and in the PhD. And so, yeah, there's a lot to get your teeth into. Uh, and, you know, that's to say nothing of the hundreds that have been produced since uh, 1950. Uh, so, yeah, it's absolutely a valid topic to look at from a film studies perspective. Uh, very little has been written on this subject. Um, most of what has been written uh, relating to uh, flying saucer films has been really couched in uh, kind of Cold War studies or looking at the idea of the other on screen, you know, that the... the Blobs and the pods, they represent communism and, and fear of the other, and they represent fear of the bomb and teenagers. Um, but most people, and whilst that's a valid reading of these many of these films, and whilst that is the preferred reading of some of them, um, the underlying uh, inspiration for all of these films, let's not forget, was not teenagers or blobs or pods or, or, or the bomb. It was literally flying saucers. It was this flying saucer craze that swept the United States and the world during the late 40s and into the 50s and throughout the Cold War and beyond. Uh, it was these uh, sightings of disc-shaped objects of flying saucers that really kind of fueled uh, Hollywood's uh, screenwriters to, to, to produce this kind of material. Of course, then they laced it with other uh, uh, sort of other readings. Uh, and so, so, yeah, but I'm not so concerned with, with traditional film studies readings. And in fact, I'm going to be uh, suggesting that, that we really need to get to the, the core the core of of, uh, of what has inspired these films, uh, and we need to sort of acknowledge that that, that UFOs are real, um, and let's you know I kind of acknowledge that very quickly, and so we can move past that fact. And I just about got my supervisors to get on board with that. Really, you know, we're not suggesting that UFOs are are lizard men, or they're they're not they're not you know some kind of um, Independence Day style uh, invading force. Uh, they're not even E.T. Uh, or, or, you know, from, from Spielberg's iconic movie. Uh, they are literally just unidentified flying objects in a strictive sense. So let's look at that first and then, and then let's see what we project onto that phenomenon and what part uh, Hollywood plays uh, in, our, in our understanding of, uh, and expectations of, of what, what actually lies you know, behind the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So you had to be pretty motivated to be able to tackle this, to be able to be courageous enough to uh, to probably approach the university with this idea. What was it that motivated you to to pursue this? Excuse me. Um, well, I've been interested in UFOs going back to my teenage years. Um, I was became very interested when I was about 14. I've always been interested in weird things, mm-hmm. um, ghosts and paranormal phenomena, but I suppose UFOs always held particular interest for me. And then when I was about 14, 15, I um, just for some reason bought a book on the subject. Um, I don't know what compelled me to do it. Probably the, 
hypnotic print cover, and it was actually Bill Hamilton's 1996 book, Alien Magic, which is a very thin volume, and it, it, it makes for an entertaining read, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's not particularly scholarly. But for a 14-year-old boy, it was absolutely captivating, and uh, it just hooked me completely. And, uh, you know, from then I just bought all the literature from all the big names and, and just consumed it very, very quickly. And uh, I suppose I got to about age... 17, 16, 17, and uh, I thought it just becomes so frustrating. Anyone who, who's ever looked at the subject for any amount of time just becomes incredibly frustrated um, because you feel a certain sense of powerlessness. Um, what can I do about this? You know, even if it's true, even, even if it's real, even if we are being visited, what can I do about it? Especially when you're 16, 17 years old, and I suppose the answer is not a lot. Um, and so because you, you feel quite disempowered. And then, of course, college got in the way, and I started to become obsessed with film then, uh, as an academic pursuit and um, so the UFOs kind of got put on the back burner and then uh, as I started to pursue my academic career so to speak I, uh, I uh, gradually came back to UFOs by my early 20s and and I realized that I couldn't really forget about it because one thing or another would keep dragging me back in and uh, so naturally my my interest in UFOs and my uh, passion for film merged. And by the time I, uh, you know, by the time I'd finished my master's degree um, and, and started thinking about PhD, uh, I, I, you know, it made sense that I should do a PhD with the, that combined the two interests. And so that's that's how it's come about. So it, it seems completely natural to do it for me. Um, yes, I was a little bit wary about. Uh, whether or not it would be accepted. In fact, to be honest, I was very surprised that the proposal was accepted. Um, I, was, I, I felt that it was a strong proposal, um, but uh, again, when, when you're dealing with, with UFOs and when you're talking about the subject in a way that's not entirely abstract and cultural, uh, where you're actually starting to deal with nuts and bolts issues, it becomes very tricky. Um, uh, uh, so... But thankfully, they accepted it, and I am still having to tread a very fine line uh, with the approach that I'm taking. Uh, but you know, it's, it's going ahead; it's going it's going well. And uh, as I say, it's uh, the, the thesis that I'm writing will, will ultimately be uh, translated into a into a populist book, which will be the silver screen sources. So um, uh, the the PhD might make for rather dry reading, as I'm sure see it. Most species do. <laughs> the book will be rather more, rather more interesting. It's exciting uh, that it is going to be in a book. Excited! I'm really excited about that. Um, so, in your research, yeah, uh, from when you started until now, I guess what? Well, how long has that been, and how has your view on this topic changed, if it has? Well, since I. Since a teenager, or since I started the PhD. Uh, since you started the PhD. Um, my views haven't changed to a great extent. Um, I suppose they've changed a little bit since I started the PhD. Um, uh, my views, I mean, since looking at the subject, obviously, my back when I was a teenager, my views have changed quite dramatically. Um, but uh, but they haven't changed a great deal since I began the PhD. Uh, it's opened up more opportunities for me. Uh, I've had the chance to meet some very interesting people. Uh, and so my view has changed slightly. I mean, my 
I, I very rarely um, actually express my personal opinion on the subject, to be honest, not even on my blog or, or in interviews. I usually play the role of the academic and just kind of try and speak in strictly objective terms and stick to hard facts and intimate detail uh, about, you know, very uh, uh, specific historical cases. And But, uh, you know, I think anyone who reads between the lines on anything I, I write will probably detect that I am a proponent of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Um, I think that's the most valid hypothesis uh, for, the, for the phenomenon as reported over the years. Um, uh, I do think that it goes beyond the ETH, however. Um, I think that the... You don't, you don't have to think that the US government is, is involved in the cover-up. Obviously, the US government is involved in the cover-up and has been uh, for many decades, and historically, they've treated the subject with great sensitivity, and their own documents show this. Um, so there's no great stretch there. But I don't think that the US government has all the answers on this subject, as many people would like to believe. Um, I think that uh, in, in, in many respects, the U.S. government is actually fairly clueless about UFOs, uh, not in all respects, I should stress, only in certain respects. Um, I think that objects have been uh, recovered by the U.S. military and other militaries around the world. Uh, I believe, obviously, they have direct knowledge of the subject. Um, they have more knowledge than us in certain respects, but probably not in others. Uh, and I think, ultimately, they're probably clueless as to what, what's going on. Uh, how possibly can, can anyone really... Uh, understand the full complexity of this, this completely baffling phenomenon. Uh, you know, you're dealing with apparently multiple agendas. Uh, you're dealing with things that really people struggle to put into words. You know, so I, I, I think that uh, if you're dealing with with intelligences from from uh, one or more, you know, star systems, uh, then I don't know. I, it just seems it seems inconceivable that anyone can really have a full picture of what's going on here, why we're being visited, what the end goal is, if there is one, uh, you know, what's going to happen today, what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think that overall there's a great deal of uncertainty um, uh, within the power circles who, who have uh, influence on this subject. Uh, and I think that, uh, well, we can get into this later if it's relevant, but I, I do think that uh, we're starting to see... Uh, evidence of that uncertainty and I think you're starting to see some uh, steps towards uh, preparing for worst case scenarios on uh, as regards as regards UFO disclosure if we can use that term mm-hmm. okay interesting I'm glad we talked about that to kind of lay that down that that'll be good going forward uh, kind of having your view so then um, having said that I guess this might be a good chance to just get right into uh, some of what you've been writing about lately, which is Trace Brandon. And of course, we had uh, Grant Cameron and Stan Friedman and Lee Spiegel on last week. Uh, I had a forum with those three. And uh, mm-hmm. Grant talked about something that you initiated, really, was this email to the CIA, mm-hmm. where, where, unfortunately, they didn't answer many of your questions. What were the natures... Mm-hmm of the questions you were asking and uh, related to, to their response? Um, well, yeah, this was sent shortly after Brandon had made his 
public statements um, on the 23rd of uh, June when he made them on Coast to Coast. And um, I should note that, that I've been looking at Brandon since 2008. Um, he's figured in my research and work for, for several years um, in his capacity as the former liaison to Hollywood uh, for the CIA. And uh, so anyone who's really looked at post-9-11 Hollywood propaganda will have come across Brandon's name. Uh, and most people who, who work in Hollywood today, uh, you know, who have spent any time in Hollywood, um, you know, any level of seniority, will have probably crossed paths with Brandon, who's a very influential guy in Hollywood. Right, and, uh, and that's, I was just going to say that's one thing I did want to ask about, because when you ran across this, of course, and even now, there are people out there who unfortunately just haven't really bothered to do enough research, who are questioning his existence, uh, whether he really worked for the CIA, that for you was not in question because you already knew of his existence um, as someone sure, working yeah. for the CIA with the entertainment. I mean, he's probably uh, uh, one of the best known, uh, well, easily one of the best known CIA operatives uh, of the last thirty years. Wow. Uh, and it was his role to be. It was his. It was his. You know, it was his job to be. To be that he was the public face of the CIA. Uh, for, for 10 years, over 10 years, um, in his role as the ELO, Entertainment Liaison Officer. He was appointed to that role in 1995. He was uh, answerable to the Director of Central Intelligence uh, and to the head of the Public Affairs Office. Um, but he had a great deal of autonomy within that role. And he made contact throughout Hollywood. Um, and he, he had a great deal of influence. Um, and a lot of that influence, it has to be said, was covert, despite the fact that he was working in a supposedly open and public uh, fashion. Um, most of the films he worked on, he, he went uncredited. Most of the TV shows he worked on, he went uncredited. Um, so, you know, felt, so audiences would go and see a film. I wouldn't have any idea that Brandon had had any influence or the CIA had had, had any influence uh, over that film at all. Um, so it's a little bit undemocratic and vaguely sinister. Um, because we don't really know the nature of the changes that he's made, but we do know that he's, that he's been involved in those films um, because he's admitted to it, but won't really elaborate on what his, you know, what his involvement was. Or you'll have information from the filmmakers themselves after the fact saying, "Yes, Chase Brown involved." Um, you know, he would phone us up and suggest this storyline or that storyline, or say, "You know, how about include this dialogue or take that dialogue out?" So it was all kind of a lot of it was off the books. Um, uh, so, so it's interesting from that perspective. But yeah, Brandon. Is the real deal, you know. He he walks the walk, he talks the talk, and he's he's a 35-year veteran of the CIA. Um, uh, 25 years before his the 25 years before his position at ELO, uh, as ELO, sorry, he um, he was uh, in the elite clandestine uh, service. Uh, he you know he's operated in dozens and dozens of countries around the world. Uh, you know he's he kind of like a James Bond or self-styled sort of James Bond type figure. And, uh, yeah, so he, he, he reported to Bill Clinton. He was a presidential briefer. Certainly has walked in some very interesting circles throughout his career. Um, so, yeah, so that's why I came to Roswell statements. Um, in fact, I knew that he was going to make these Roswell statements before he even made them. Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I can't really say how I know that. <laughs> but I knew about several... I knew several weeks before, um, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's kind of been leading to this to several people uh, months in advance. 
Um, but he hadn't, he wasn't so explicit about it as he was on the Coast to Coast show. So uh, I was actually surprised at how explicit he was on the Coast to Coast show, I have to say. No, but Brandon was of interest to me and my writing partner, my frequent writing part- partner, uh, Dr. Matthew Orford, because uh, he was a figure in the case of the screenwriter Gary DeVore, who disappeared in extremely suspicious circumstances in uh, 1997. And um, we wrote an article about this, and uh, Matthew has made a film about it that should be coming out next year. Um, it's a very, very interesting case indeed. Uh, and you can find more information on the internet. But, uh, but Brandon was very good friends with Gary DeVore, and, and we have reason to believe, very good reason to believe that Gary DeVore himself, a screenwriter who worked on films from Schwarzenegger and Van Damme and all that, he was a CIA asset himself. So we've been looking at, at Brandon for a long time. And so when he made these statements, uh, we were very, very interested. And uh, the questions that we put to the CIA after Brandon's uh, interview were really the questions, to be quite honest, that should have been asked during that interview. Uh, John Wells, who was interviewing Brandon, sat there in near total silence. <laughs> as Brandon just made drop these bombshells and there was really no follow-up on it. Um, Nori, uh, George Nori, uh, uh, put that to rights to some extent in his follow-up interview that he conducted uh, recently. But uh, we wanted to put some direct questions to the CIA and these same questions we put to Brandon, but he did not reply to us, despite the fact that he had already been in contact with my colleague, Matthew Wolford, uh, prior to this and had had, uh, had a friendly exchange with him. So, But when we put these direct questions to him, he didn't reply. So these are the questions that we put to CIA and uh, slightly to Brandon. To CIA, we wrote, was Mr. Brandon's interview on Coast to Coast on June 23, 2012, and were the comments he made during this interview subject to prior approval by the CIA's Publication Review Board, PRB? Two, does Mr. Brandon's assertion that, that the CIA currently has in its possession proof of extraterrestrial visitation which we stress he claims to have seen while working in his capacity as ELO, constitute a disclosure of classified information. If so, is he subject to legal penalties or other action as a result of this disclosure? If not, why not? Three, is Mr. Brandon still under contract with the CIA in any capacity? We know the answer to that, by the way. He is still under contract with the CIA. Uh, By his own admission, in fact, um, he is currently the... uh, senior intelligence consultant to the uh, intelligence division of BAE Systems, which is the defense giant. Uh, so defense corporations uh, actually have their own intelligence wings, which may come as a surprise to many. And these intelligence wings consult with various governments around the world uh, on issues of security and um, procurement and things like that. And so uh, Brandon is, is a head honcho, really, at SPECTAL, this, uh, this intelligence division of uh, BAE Systems, and in that capacity he is tied still to the US government and the CIA. Four, are there any circumstances under which members of the public, academics, journalists, for example, might be granted limited access to the historical intelligence collection, which is where Brandon claims to have seen the Roswell box? In other words, is it possible for the public to independently verify Mr. Brandon's claims regarding Roswell materials in the HIC? Number five, as an extension of the above question, what CIA communication policies are in place to provide the public with an opportunity to respond to and inquire about materials observed, excuse me, materials observed and statements made by former CIA operatives 
concerning the Roswell matter that may be seen to communicate classified intelligence or national security information in the public forum. And number six, if avenues for public verification of Mr. Brandon's claims are not available at this time, we ask that the CIA officially comment on his statements, either either confirming or denying their veracity. And then we specified that these questions are not in the context of his fictional book, but in the context of his factual statements that he made unequivocally on Coast to Coast. Uh, their response came a week later, after I'd had to send them a reminder email, and uh, they replied <coughs> with exactly the same reply, word for word, that they gave Billy Cox um, of the Herald Tribune. And uh, their reply was, which I don't have in front of me, unfortunately, but it was essentially, uh, they said, off the record, so obviously it's not off the record, and I come back to say it, off the record, mm-hmm. um, we will not answer any of your questions, basically. <laughs> we, uh, and they, they kind of said that uh, they can't answer this question for that reason, they can't answer this question for that reason, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they said, on the record, you can use this one sentence. And then they gave us a sentence that we used in our article and that Billy Cox also used in his, um, which was basically that... Um, uh, gosh, I can't even remember what it was now, but it was it was basically a, a it was a, a very polite dismissal of Brandon's claims without directly branding him a liar. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, you know, we haven't published what they've said to us off the record, but it wasn't anything explosive. Um, it was all just we cannot will not answer your questions. So it, it kind of does raise questions in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we put these we put these we put these questions to the CIA's public affairs office whose job is to liaise with the public in, in an open way. <laughs> so, but everything you ask them, they reply with, off the record. And then they say, uh, you know, and we won't answer your questions anyway. So they're not really a great deal of use. Um, I've, I've made other inquiries to the CIA, PAO, on other issues related to UFOs, and every response they've ever given me has begun with the phrase, off the record. Mm. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> I think it's just standard... Procedure. I don't think there's anything conspiratorial about that. I didn't right. understand the procedure. I think they they always reply with off the record, but it, it's just it's kind of useless, really, as a as a public. Uh, right. Public and office. why say off the record when they really don't have an authority to uh, to enforce that? Um, you could. They don't have it. They don't. Well, I think I think why they might do it, and this is speculation, is that they are they know they can't enforce it. Obviously, as you say, but what they can do is pay attention to whether or not the researcher heeds their request. Right. Um, so, 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 for example, I would have published their off-the-record statements, which I haven't done, although I alluded to them there. Um, they might take notice of that and then therefore be less reluctant to be, you know, cooperative with me in future. Right. I'm just going to spill the beans. So they, I think they want to feel out individual researchers as to how, how cooperative they can be. Right, interesting. And and their statement was they found nothing in the agency's holding to corroborate Mr. Brandon's go. specific claim. So, like you said, that's right. They didn't. And that's what's right. interesting? Mm-hmm. I was going to say what's interesting no, <laughs> about uh, your explanation of Brandon here and the history that you've given, which is really helpful uh, because it's insightful for people who don't understand so much uh, who he was and what he did. Is that is how public a figure he would be? I mean, what I think is interesting is you can go to I put in uh, you know the entertainment uh, liaison 
uh, officer for CIA, and a site comes up, and they have a site called Entertainment Industry Liaison, and it's almost like a little ad. Hey, if you're making a movie, give us a call, and we'll help you with your movie. We, if it's about CIA, yep. we'll we'll give you information about our procedures, tell you what you can use and can't, and, and we'll also give you tours. I mean, they're really enticing you. Hey, let us get involved with what you're doing. So I'm sure a lot of movies must have done that, and uh, so they have. Well, well, the CIA involvement in Hollywood goes back decades, goes back mm-hmm. to the 1950s. Um, but their involvement prior to 1995 was was covert, um, and uh, it wasn't until 1995 that they decided that because their media rep- media representations of the agency had for so long been so negative, mm-hmm. um, what they decided to do was to try and put that to rights uh, by encouraging the entertainment industry to openly liaise uh, kind of in a mutual way with the agency uh, in order to kind of what well in order to from the CIA's perspective in order to uh, put out a, a very positive flattering image of the CIA mm-hmm. in order to boost recruitment and retain personnel which is much the same as what the Department of Defense does in Hollywood their their goals in Hollywood officially are to you know boost recruitment and retain personnel through uh, positive portrayals of, of what they do um, so it's it's kind of, they don't call it propaganda, but it is propaganda, mm-hmm. although it, it's, it's propaganda that can only be achieved with the complicity of, of Hollywood. Um, it's not forced upon Hollywood, you know, it, right. they, they, sign, they sign a contract. Um, and it's worrying how many, how many filmmakers just do this without batting an eyelid, you know, yeah, let's sign a contract with the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. To sign a contract with the CIA, you know, without really giving much thought to what effect that will have on their film in terms of artistic integrity. And because with the DOD, uh, they sign away, well, a great deal, really. The, the Department of Defense has huge script control uh, throughout, uh, you know, from, from, from day one. Wow. And they can control uh, things right through to, through to the editing stage and even into the marketing stage. Um, the same is same as with the CIA, although the CIA has less to offer filmmakers than the Department of Defense because the DOD offers filmmakers, you know, cool tanks and helicopters and troops, and that right. boosts the reality, boosts the realism of the film, but it also cuts the cost for the filmmakers because they don't have to create create all that stuff in the computer; they can just use it uh, literally. Um, but the CIA don't have all that stuff. What they can what they can offer really is just advice. Um, and they can offer access to their Langley headquarters, um, uh, and to, you know they can film the CIA seal on the ground, and it just adds to the realism and things like that. And they get, but but really what they're offering is advice. They're offering um, uh, one or more CIA personnel to be present throughout the shoot and the script writing process. Uh, really, they they try to exert as much influence as they can before the script is even written. They like to, uh, by their own admission, they like to try and mould ideas before pen is put to paper. Uh, so that they, you know, they know what kind of film they're getting involved with, and uh, and what the end product will be. Um, so they are so in that capacity, they're free to, to to suggest changes. The the filmmakers don't have to go along with those changes. They can reject them, but if they do reject them, then the CIA will pull out and they will lose their support. So essentially, they do have to, you know, they do have to go with those changes. And, and in right. almost all cases, all filmmakers do. Um, do go just you know they take on board the, the, the recommendations that are made to them by by the state, right? And so you get huge influence from from the government in Hollywood. So 
So, and we'll get more into that, but it, it, kind of getting back to what you've been writing about in, in this and, and kind of along the lines of what Grant has been writing, given what you have just told us, I mean, when I read your stories, it looked like uh, you you guys were certainly of the opinion that uh, this was, and, and you wrote this in your questions, that there most likely was some sort of collaboration in that Chase had uh, let the CIA know, know that he was going to come forward with these statements. Uh, and, you know, from an outsider's view, such as mine and uh and I think a lot of the public, you would you would be like, well, you know, not necessarily. I don't know why that would happen, but um, he could have been independently doing what he's doing. But given like what you've just explained, where it's his job to kind of vet what is publicly right. being said about the CIA inside of the entertainment industry, he in particular would have a sensitivity around what would be going out being said about the CIA. And he would then, because I get this feeling he's, he's kind of playing dumb about this. Oh, I didn't know it would be such a big deal. Well, he had to have known, and he would have been the person yeah. to best know it would be a big deal, and that he probably should get that information okayed before he said something. Now I can see, from your perspective, much better. Chase Brandon knew well in advance the fallout of his statements. He, he knew what would happen. He knew the media reaction. He knew how it would all play out. And he knew, uh, uh, you know, that he would be faced with difficult questions. Uh, but he was going to make these statements regardless. And he's continued to make these statements, despite the fact the CIA has officially and naturally uh, dismissed his claims. I mean, what else are they going to do? They can't confirm them. Right. Um, so, so he, but despite the fact that they have, they have dismissed his claims. He's still making these claims, um, and he's gone more mainstream with his claims. He, he gave an in, interview uh, just last week to BBC Radio, uh, and they were much more direct in their questioning of him, um, and it was quite interesting. But what what you're seeing in in his interviews is that he is consistently putting across three or four points, and it seems that that's what he's trying to do here. Uh, he's trying to hammer home two or three, like three or four points that he wants people to accept. Um, one, Roswell happened. It was real. It was extraterrestrial. There is a craft, or there was a craft, rather. And that's the key, that's the key thing here, that there was a craft. There were bodies. Two, uh, don't blame the CIA. It was the Air Force who covered it up, which is true, well, you know, to an extent. Um, the CIA would have been involved, obviously, uh, after the fact. Um, CIA wasn't in existence at the time the OSS was, but uh, CIA would have become involved after the fact. Um, uh, but he said, don't blame the CIA, they weren't involved, and this is a crime of the past. If there is a crime at all, it's a crime of the past. It's a crime that rests with people who've been in their graves for decades. No one in the CIA today currently really understands the implications, the significance of, of what happened at Roswell. Um, the, the evidence, if it exists anywhere in its physical form, uh, he's kind of lost under 65 years worth of storage dust and, you know, it's, very, it's just a vague institutional memory now. And it's kind of like, so if the doo-doo hits the fan as, as regards, you know, some kind of UFO event in the future, don't point to the CIA and say, you knew about Roswell, because yes, we knew, but we didn't really understand it and we weren't the ones who uh, initiated the cover-up. We were just, you know, we only had 
very limited information about it, and no one really knows what's going on either way. But this is the absolutely bizarre scenario that he's putting out. And obviously it's the most historically significant thing ever. Mm -hmm. No one really pays that much attention to it, and no one really understands it. It's just kind of lost lost in a storage warehouse like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is what he keeps saying. He keeps trying to conjure this image of this uh, <laughs> this disc somewhere, probably packed up under a million boxes in a store in, you know, Hangar 18 somewhere. Um, but that no one's, but the, the, the point is that there's no active cover-up. It's not an ongoing effort to deceive the public. It's just something that no one really understands and knows about, and, and a few people who do know about it don't really know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the other point he's putting across. The other point, of course, uh, the point he's putting across throughout all of this is that the CIA is entirely righteous, uh, utterly uncorruptible. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's savior of, of of America mm-hmm. and of mankind, and uh, which is you know what he what he was employed to do as the public face of the agency was to put that image across. Um, uh, so he's selling that image as well. But he and then he's you know he, so he's he's basically saying yes, those will happen. Yes, those are real. Um, Really, there is no active cover-up of it anymore, and so it's kind of like you know you could look at it as a, as a limited hangout. This idea where certain information is disclosed uh, in a very controlled way, in a way that best serves the agency controlling it, um, uh, you know, perhaps with the expectation that more might be disclosed down the road. Um, but for now, this is going to have to do, and this is the way we're going to do it. Um, it's, it's difficult to say. I couldn't. I can't say conclusively what. What is motivating Brandon here? I can say with a high degree of confidence that he is not acting autonomously. Uh, he will absolutely not have gone on radio and made those unequivocal, unequivocal, unequivocal statements uh, without, first of all, giving a heads up to his uh, uh, his pals at the CIA and also to his uh, his employers at BAE Systems, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, defense giant. I mean, how? I can just imagine if you're if you're uh, the uh, CEO of BA uh, Systems, and you wake up on the uh, you know the 26th <laughs> or whatever of June 2012, and you see that your 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 senior intelligence consultant has just declared Roswell to be an extraterrestrial event, right. and that UFOs are real. And that, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, I, well, either you're going to be not surprised because he's already given you the heads up and you've given him permission, or you've actually told him to say it in the first place, or you, you know, or, the, or your associates have, mm-hmm. have orchestrated this in the first place. So you're not going to be surprised. Or two, you're going to think, oh my God, he's a complete loose cannon, or he's insane. We're going to have to fire him. Well, as far as I know, he hasn't been fired. And um, you know, it, regardless of his current position at BAE, uh, he is still tied uh, to, he's still, and he still keeps close company on a personal level with CIA top brass. He was good friends with, with DCIs uh, for years. Uh, it's his world. He, it's the only world he knows. He, you know, mm. you never really leave the agency when you've been in it for that long and right. at that level. And, but that's his world. And you don't all of a sudden, and he knows how sensitive UFOs are. Anyone, anyone who's ever read a book on the subject or seen an episode of the X-Files knows how sensitive UFOs are. Um, and so he's not going to go on radio and make those unequivocal statements without first of all, having had approval uh, from either CIA, top brass, uh, or some other uh, uh, control group somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, especially when you outline exactly what he's saying. I say I said he was playing dumb, and I don't mean that, you know, as like a, a phrase to, to call him names or anything. Yeah, I he's mean, he's kind of, he's playing innocent, which is exactly kind of like you're describing what he's trying to per se 
perceive the CIA as. It's kind of innocent in all of this, you know, hey, you know, it was the Air Force that did all of this cover-up, which is kind of interesting, and he's careful in sticking to these points that don't contradict, which it it does seem to me, at least from listening to him, that he is well-versed in a lot of the Roswell, uh, the details of the investigation, and it's one of the things I wanted to ask Stanton, uh, like last week was, do you see any holes, any problems with your research and what he's saying? And he said no, because he is being careful to not add anything to the story that is uh, certainly something that can be dismissed or is outside of the realms of, of what's part of the yeah. research. Um, he's, he knows exactly what to say. And if you listen to listen to his interviews in full and listen to them a second and a third time, which I've done, and I know others have done, like uh, Grant and others, um, they are fascinating. Uh, he's a master at what he does. Uh, he, he really knows how to play the media, how to uh, construct a sentence in order that the question that you've asked is completely lost within seconds and you've forgotten that you've lost it. Uh, and then he'll come back and answer the question that he wants to answer, just much like a politician. Right. Um, he, he knows exactly how to handle the media. Um, and uh, yeah, but he, nevertheless, he, he is in a difficult position. Um, and he must have known that it was going to get a bit tricky. Uh, but he is in a difficult position because now people are starting to ask slightly more pressing, uh, more complex questions about the nature of these claims, and, and also about the legal consequences of those claims. Billy Cox wrote an excellent piece uh, just a couple of days ago on his blog, uh, you know, suggesting that Brandon be subpoenaed and, uh, and investigated for these claims. I mean, absolutely, I mean, these are, these are remarkable claims, but because of the laughter curtain surrounding UFOs, it's really just pushed to the side, and, uh, you know, no one really pays much attention to it. Um, uh, Steve Bassett has currently got his... Um, his disclosure petition online, um, excuse me, his, um, his investigate Brandon's claims petition online um, in the context of the Roswell incident, and, and it points out, of course, that, that Brandon's statements directly contradict the White House's official uh, policy on on, uh, on UFOs, which is that, to date, there has never been any evidence collected by the U.S. government which suggests that UFOs are extraterrestrial or that extraterrestrials have ever visited us. That's the official statement put out by the Obama administration, I believe, was it last year or earlier this year? Uh, last year, I think. And um, you know, so they're on record with that now, and that's what Steve Bassett's uh, petition last year accused of nothing else. And so based on that position now, you can say, well, hang on a minute, you're saying there's no evidence, yet one of your former high-ranking guys, decorated, highly respected CIA official, actually says that you do have evidence, and that, and that, that evidence is sitting, as we speak, in historical intelligence collection at the CIA. So show us. Uh, it does raise difficult questions. Um, so I, 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 I don't think we've heard the last of Brandon yet. I think uh, I think there's more to come. Um, I don't think we'll have anything particularly explo- anything more explosive than he's already said. Um, but I do think that we'll hear more from him. What I think, what I've said um, previously, as, as, as to what. This is, you know, this is just my take on it. I can't back this up. My my feeling on this is that Brandon is acting under orders, and the goal here is partly limited hangout, uh, partly disinformation. Uh, and the limited disinformation hangout. What do you mean the, by that term? No, excuse me. Excuse me. So, limited hangout is the release of. It's, it's, it's like an intelligence term. Uh, it's the re- the limited release of information. Uh, 
sensitive, uh, potentially explosive information that you put out there to the public uh, because you fear that there may be a greater disclosure to come, which could be more damaging. And you're able to control, it's basically like a controlled leak, mm -hmm. a very controlled leak. And it's spun in such a way that it kind of absolves the agency responsible of any wrongdoing. Um, and so, so there's, there's, there's that element to it. So Brandon sort of confirming to, to people that Roswell was real and it was alien. And I mean, you know, we didn't necessarily need Brandon to tell us that because there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that anyway. So based on that apparently truthful statement that he's made, what he's hoping to do is gain our trust. And this is also part of the limited hangout as well. You know, the person who leaks the information is expected to gain the public's trust so that they can then control our perceptions in the long run. Um, so by making that statement, a lot of people go, well, he must be telling the truth. And indeed, uh, Grant Cameron's current opinion poll that he's got uh, online suggests that most people believe that Bannon is telling the truth as he knows it. So he's already gained people's trust. Um, uh, so what we're likely to do then is believe what else he has to say in the future and see him as, as a genuine whistleblower, as, a, as, a, as an autonomous leaker. Uh, but I don't believe he is at all. I believe that this is part of a, a, a much more sophisticated uh, operation here. And the, the bigger goal, I think, is, yes, Brandon wants people to read his book, but not strictly for commercial purposes. As, as I've pointed out before, I don't think Brandon needs uh, to be worrying about money if he's, if he's a senior intelligence consultant for a multi-billion dollar defense corporation. He's going to be earning probably uh, more in a month than what he would earn in a year uh, off his book if his book sold exceptionally well. So it's not a huge, uh, uh, I don't think there's huge financial motivation behind the book. Um, uh, but I think the book is political. The, the motivation there is political. And the book was, as a, as a matter of fact, um, vetted by the CIA. They checked it and asked him to change uh, material uh, that, was, that was contained in the book. Brandon has said that the book contains real material, uh, real information, excuse me, and he's insisted that people read the book, quote, between the lines, and that there's a great deal of fact to be found in the book. What he wants, but he's basically said, that obviously, it's had to be published as fiction in order for it to be vetted by the CIA, because the CIA is not going to publish it as fact. But uh, uh, what he wants to do, he wants people to do is read the book as fiction, uh, as fact, disguised as fiction, if that makes sense. He wants people to see it as, as, as the real deal. Um, and, and I think that is the, that's the, uh, that's the goal, and, and and the book is actually fiction. I think that the book, uh, which I've read, is uh, it's just a paranoid fantasy. It's uh, it's disinformation, uh, but people will read it as fact now, or largely factual, based on, uh, on on his statements regarding Roswell. And that's the danger. I think people are going to pick up the book. It's going to sell really well, and people are going to go, "Oh my God, this is what's really going on," because this guy's told us now, and so we know that we know exactly how the CIA has been involved. We know. You know, uh, you know how how we got covered up. We know what the agendas are at play here, and and you know, as far as the book's concerned, I, I think it's I think it really is fiction. I think it's fantasy. But Brandon wants us to read it as fact, and indeed the CIA wants us to read it as fact because they vetted the damn thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm getting worked up because it just annoys the hell out of me. Right. Well, there's some really good points there, and uh, given that you have uh, seen uh, what Brandon's involvement has been in, in the entertainment industry in the past, um, what do you think uh, if he is, you know, working with the CIA? What do you think they're doing here? Do you think uh, they're trying to control 
the story, the UFO kind of mythology, or do you think they are? I think yeah. Grant was kind of thinking maybe they're trying to slowly disclose to get the truth out. But obviously, like what you're saying, there also there is some non-truth here. I think that as far as, and this is what I'm kind of proposing in my in my uh, academic work, is as far as the government's interest in in uh, uh, managing media representations of UFOs, um, it's not so much about debunking or acclimating as it is about perception management. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, so it's not so black and white necessarily. And I think, you know, a lot of people are confused. They, they'll sort of say, well, this film, you know, this project seems to be acclimating us. You know, got, like, so, for example, the Robert Emenegger case in the 70s, it seemed to be acclimating us. The Ward Kimball case, the Disney one of the 50s, these seem to be efforts to acclimate us to UFO reality. Uh, but then others seem to be trying to debunk the subject and how, how do we account for this. Well, it's not, you know, the, the phenomenon itself is constantly evolving, constantly changing, and the perceptions of those in control uh, uh, in, in government are also changing and shift, you know, constantly shifting as, as the phenomenon evolves. And so their approach uh, with regards to media is also changing. So we're not just seeing debunking or demystify, uh, de- demystifying or, or acclimating. You're actually just seeing a more subtle uh, program of perception management. It's always constantly trying to tweak how we perceive this phenomenon. You can't. Ultimately, it's impossible to debunk UFOs through media, and they re- the CIA would have realised this very quickly uh, in the 1950s. Because, you know, how do you debunk something that continues to spectacularly manifest itself around mm-hmm. the world on a daily basis? You can't debunk it. People know it exists. People keep seeing it. People keep recording it on cameras and documenting it. It obviously exists, so you can't debunk it. But what you can do is manage how people perceive the phenomenon, and you and you ma- and you manage it according to your own interests. Um, and so that's the CIA's uh, interest in in manipulating media, as far as UFOs are concerned. It's about perception management, and it's never it's not necessarily clear cut whether it's acclimation or debunking. And often it can be both. Um, and of course, disinformation, as we know, includes both fact and fiction, uh, in order to make it effective. So so Brandon's core statement here that Roswell was real. Um, I don't think many people who've looked at the, you know, who have looked at the uh, the case would dispute that. Um, and there's a great deal of evidence suggested that there was that there were non-human entities involved in that in that recovery. Um, so Brandon's kind of confirming that, and I'd say that that that, um, uh, that allows us to trust him, uh, and it puts him in a position of authority. And what happens then is that we're more inclined to believe what he has to say about the UFO subject in the future. And we're more inclined to accept that his book is actually fact, um, labelled as fiction. And, and I think that's dangerous because I do think that the book is, 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 is real disinformation. I think so if you, if you want to break it down, I suppose I view his statements about Roswell on Coast to Coast and to other, interview, and to other interviewers as being a sort of a limited hangout, partial disclosure um, in a very safe way. Um, uh, and his book is a is a, is, a, is another another issue entirely, but his statements are made to actually encourage you to read the book, and then what the CIA wants you to understand about the phenomenon is in the book. Gotcha. So all very complicated. So, which kind of makes sense because what you, what I'm thinking is, of course, is CIA is also kind of if this is a, a concerted effort, there's just more than. Uh, Brandon, uh, that uh, they're also kind trying to make their spin 
in that. It's almost like they're they're afraid maybe the Air Force, you know, they've got so many leaks, there's so much information coming out that uh, the Air they Force... They realize has, it, yeah. Yeah, it, they can't contain it, and so they're already doing they their can't. own damage control to say, you know, if this does okay. come out, if something does come out, CIA can still wash their hands of it. It'll still look like the good guys. That's it. It's about, it's about constantly covering their backs, you know, and all of the agencies, all of the branches of the military intelligence apparatus in any government are all, all actually remarkably self-serving. They're not, you know, uh, the Air Force couldn't care less if the CIA was lynched over this subject, and the CIA couldn't care less if the Air Force was. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually the way it's always been. These agencies are very self-serving. They often don't share information with each other, um, and they're kind of like states within states, especially the CIA. Um, so the CIA doesn't care about blaming the Air Force for Oswell. You know, that's the Air Force's problem. The CIA wants to cover its own back. And, and I think that's what you're seeing here. Uh, it is constantly about making sure that the public perceives this phenomenon in a way that best suits them in the event that the crap should hit the fan. And I do think that, 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 that you're seeing, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think there are signs that, that, that there's preparedness for that now um, in whatever form it might take. Uh, because what we're seeing, what we've been seeing over the last uh, four or five years is many, many, many countries, uh, governments around the world, starting to release en masse thousands and thousands of UFO files. Um, so you've had the UK, uh, France, uh, you've had Canada, New Zealand, about half a dozen South and Central American countries. Um, and all these files are coming out um, and... Military officials, government officials have started to make statements uh, on the issue in a very open way, if not, if not explicitly stating that it's extraterrestrial, although some military officials have stated that uh, from Central and South American countries. Uh, you're starting to have uh, public, publicly accessible uh, UFO investigations websites set up uh, in Chile, for example, and you've got the France has had one for, for, for many years now. What you're seeing is, is an effort on the part of each of these respective governments to appear to the public to be open and to be competent with regards to UFOs. What, the nightmare scenario for any government, especially the US government, because they have the most to lose, because they have the most to hide, is that tomorrow morning, you know, a UFO decides to show up mothership style over, over New York. Right? It hasn't happened to date, obviously, but if you're, if you're in the national security apparatus, it's your job to be worried about such a thing. You know, especially if you're keep keeping close tabs on UFOs, you're going to have to plan for that, no matter how unlikely it turns out to be. You, you have to at least have that in, in the back of your mind, and I imagine that's the kind of scenario that keeps people up at night. Um, and so, what do they do? How can they how can they prepare for that? Well, all they can do really is is try to manage how people perceive the phenomenon beforehand, and they can try to put out an image of themselves that's um, that's not going to get them lynched. You know, in, in, uh, when when everything falls apart. Uh, so, so what you're seeing is in, in these other countries, as I say, thousands of files being released. There were just there were several hundred more files released just last week in the UK. Um, and what it's doing is it's showing to the public that one, we are not negligent in our duties. We have taken the phenomenon seriously for decades. We've looked at it. We've analysed it. We've not drawn any solid conclusions. We don't rule out that these things could be extraterrestrial. They're all clear about that. They all say we do not rule out that they could be alien, but we've not got any direct proof of it. They say, so look, we're not covering up because here are our files. And so we've released these thousands of files too, so you can't accuse us of being involved in a cover-up, and you can't accuse us of being incompetent or negligent. So it kind of covers their back. So 
you know, if, if stuff were to, to happen tomorrow in a disclosure, you know, disclosure style, then the UK government would, would be in a fairly respectable position. They could say, gosh, isn't this a surprise? We were wrong, but at least we weren't complicit in a cover-up. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and then the same could be said for many of the other, many of the other governments. The, U, the US government is, uh, is well, I think their total silence on the subject is, is rather telling. Um, you know, they, 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 they don't say anything on the subject unless they're, you know, unless you put their, you know, unless you twist their arm behind their back. They, they won't say anything, and even then they say the most mundane things, um, which is to be expected. Uh, but they are in a pickle. What are they, you know, they have to prepare for these kind of scenarios. Um, uh, so I, I just think that, that, that things like the Brandon statements and other disclosures uh, leaks uh, statements uh, uh, along similar lines over the years are part of, as Glenn Cameron suggests, a controlled disclosure program. Uh, how effective that's going to be, I don't know. But really, they don't have many options. What else can they do? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, uh, a lot of this is bumbling also in that CIA, I think, is a little more um, controlled. They have a little they, – they know better what they're doing but when it comes to, like, the Air Force, I mean, they're one agency, the CIA, that has a lot of procedures. They have, a, a you know, a more control over everything that everybody's doing in their group because they're a smaller group as it's supposed to, like, the Air Force, which you have generals all over the place and you have, uh, you know, colonels and what have you and base commanders and you have all of these many, many people. So it's much more uncontrollable, which was a bit of... Uh, according to um, um, some of the early researchers in this field, you know, that uh, the CIA was trying to take over the UFO subject because of that issue. They were saying, you know, you guys are too unruly uh, because they're such big organizations, let alone the government itself, which all has these groups with all this infighting and who knows what. There's a lot of people that don't know anything, no doubt. Uh, A lot of even high-ranking military officials, uh, who I believe, you know, they don't know anything, let you do, yet you do have some people. And, in fact, you know, I've heard these stories again and again where, uh, for instance, one person is working with an intelligence organization uh, and they're bound to secrecy there, while at the same time they're answering to a superior officer over here who they cannot tell them everything they know or everything they're working with, this other intelligence organization. So it's so complicated, and there's all of this, This, I think that's a lot of a bumbling going on where they're probably, I wouldn't imagine, and I don't know what you think, that uh, other than CIA, who probably has their stuff together pretty well, there probably isn't some overall plan. There's just too many different groups, and it yeah. is too unruly that there's different people trying different things here and there, and it's I agree. Just kind of a mess. I agree, and I think I agree, and I think that goes a long way towards accounting for uh, the, the different strategies that seem to, to you know, mm-hmm. that are apparent in in, in the in the uh, government's uh, involvement in media over the years with regards to this subject. Uh, you know, one minute they're trying to acclimate us, the next they're trying to debunk. Uh, but you'll find that there's different branches of the government involved in different films and perhaps they have different agendas. You know, it's a divisive issue. I, I always say, you know, the UFO issue is a divisive issue, especially uh, not, you know, not only within within the UFO community, but, but also, I expect, within the corridors of power. Um, and we know that going back to the, uh, to the, to the 40s, you know, when, when the uh, 
Air Force uh, ran Project Sign, um, its first UFO investigations program, you know, the original officers there concluded that UFOs were interplanetary. And then, uh, you know, you had the Secretary of the Air Force order all of those reports burned. And then you had other people suggesting, no, it was Soviet. Some people were saying, yeah, it was, it was actual phenomena. Some people were saying, no, it's, it's, you know, it's extraterrestrial. Uh, it, it's a phenomenon that divides opinion. Um, and, and I, I expect that that's the case today, especially, and, you know, you have to consider as well, as you point out, that it's something that only a, a small handful of people have any real access to because of the compartmentalization uh, of, of the secrecy. So it's uh, it's impossible to, to know what's going on uh, in the corridors of power with regards to this subject. We can only speculate. I don't think that speculation is, is, is always uh, entirely beneficial. Um, but, uh, you know, there are signs uh, and there are patterns emerging with regards to uh, disclosure efforts or apparent disclosure efforts, and we can start to piece together a, a picture. And uh, and the Chase Brandon testimony seems to be another another uh, piece in that in that picture in that puzzle. And uh, so we'll just see how it how it develops over over the next few weeks and, and months. Mm-hmm. I did want to ask you a lot more about uh, UFOs and, and entertainment, and we didn't get to that because it, it got taken up with Chase, which has just been a lot of interesting stuff. And so I'll definitely need to have you back very soon to talk about that. But I did want to touch on one other thing you mentioned, which is really interesting, which is that uh, Chase did um, consult with Bill Clinton uh, did some consulting with Bill Clinton, which is interesting because, of course, we all know that Bill Clinton was really interested in UFOs, in Roswell yeah. in particular. So it makes you wonder if there was some talk with with these two on that topic. And beyond that, Bill Clinton, uh, most likely because of his interest, the Air Force came out with these documents saying, oh, no, there's nothing to it. Of course, we're familiar with these big case studies that they put out. And Clinton has since said that he pretty much buys it, that, you know, they told me there's nothing to it, so there's nothing to it. Um, always with that caveat, though, that, you know, t- mm. that uh, someone could be holding secrets from me still. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Clinton, Clinton's the same. He always sticks to that line. Um, he, he has to obviously maintain the official position that, that, it's, that it wasn't alien. Uh, but he always, as you say, has that caveat where he says, but I don't know what people are withholding from me. People don't tell me everything. And he also occasionally adds that, you know, obviously there's probably life in the universe and that we might one day find it. So he's always dropping these hints. I mean, his his, his position on the subject is very clear. Um, uh, so that's interesting itself. But uh, one last thing I'll add quickly on the Chase Banner thing is, is Grant said it before, but I, I'd like to clarify as well that his, his, box, his Roswell box story, where he claims to have seen this box containing these materials and files, uh, in the HIC, I, I don't buy that for a minute. I think that's a concoction, um, which isn't to say that, that you know, the essence of what he said isn't true, and that Roswell was, was extraterrestrial, but I don't buy how he came across this material for a minute. It's, it's not remotely plausible uh, that you would have all of this material in a relatively low security uh, uh, location. Uh, and all together in one box, you know, it would be compartmentalised. It wouldn't be that accessible. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be labelled Roswell. You know, we would probably have a numerical, uh, uh, num- uh, numerical um, identification. And uh, you know, it's he's using that as a device. It's a storytelling device. It's it's 
yeah, if, if Brandon genuinely does have not have first-hand knowledge of Roswell or second-hand knowledge of Roswell, then he it will have probably been amassed over several decades through conversations with people here and there in the CIA at various levels, and maybe he's seen some documentation in this facility or that facility. But he can't talk about that because that is classified. That would be breaching national security. Mm-hmm. And it would be implicating other, other people. So what he can do is he can condense all of that information into this neat little story uh, where he saw this Roswell box and it was all contained in there. So it's a storytelling device. It's just a neat way to deliver this core truth to the public in a way that doesn't incriminate anyone. Right. And following that, it's almost also a signal to anybody really in the, who has been in the CIA, who's been in this uh, collection of books, which is what this historical area seems to be, that they would know that that part of his story yeah. is not accurate. So they would know that right. this is something else going on. Yeah. yeah. Really yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, And my yeah, final... So it's, it's, uh-huh. very, it's, very, it's very well thought out. Very, right. very well thought out. As, as, is everything, as is everything that Chase Brandon does. Right. My final question would be... Uh, just a perception, a difference in perception uh, from the United States to the UK. I mean, how does the UK interact to all of this material? Is uh, it, you know, of course, you see the sun out there with some pretty wild stuff. Daily Mail is kind of the same thing, uh, but uh, you do see stories in Telegraph and things like this. Uh, rarely these days in the Guardian, it seems, which they used to cover a lot more stories. Mm. But how does the UK in general, you think, uh, take this stuff? Uh, how does the UK news media, or how does the UK public Both. react to it? Um, the news media has, uh, in, in the last few years, started to treat the subject a bit more seriously, it has to be said. Um, often, t- in terms of broadsheets, The Telegraph is by far the best uh, newspaper for uh, serious reporting on UFOs. Uh, they've, they, you know, they, they consistently report on all of the... Um, uh, UFO file, file releases, they report on um, uh, UFO sightings and incidents and testimonies, uh, and they, more often than not, do it very, you know, you know, kind of straight on. They don't, they don't couch it in silly language, and uh, it, it's, it's straight on, it's to the point, and it's respectful. Uh, that's something that's, that's quite interesting, I find, and The Telegraph is the best-selling broadsheet in the UK. Uh, the Sun I mean, the Sun will always go after UFOs. They'll feature anything with UFOs in it because they know it sells. But it's problematic with the tabloids because any time the word UFO appears in a tabloid, it delegitimizes the subject just simply through its association with the the tabloid, Mm -hmm. uh, with the trashy press. So regardless of how how seriously it's reported in that paper, which is usually not very... um, uh, people will just come away with the impression, oh, it's just another sun, sun story and it's all nonsense. It's, you know, Bigfoot ate my baby type stuff, you know. And um, uh, so so, so the media are covering it more, I think, than they have done in a, in a long time. There is, there is barely a, a week goes by now that one of the newspapers, broadsheet or tabloid, will not feature uh, a UFO story. And often there will be several a week. Um, so it, it's there. Uh, the public are fully aware of it. I think that there's uh, um, people starting to treat the subject more seriously, both in, in the news media and just out on the street. People uh, are, I think, quite accepting of the fact that there are unidentified flying objects. And uh, just just because of what we've been seeing in terms of uh, uh, scientific discoveries lately and, uh, and uh, announcements, I think that 
more and more people are starting to get used to the idea that we're not the only ones in the universe. Regardless of UFOs, take those out of the equation, people are starting to think, well, perhaps we're not alone in the universe after all. We're told now that there's at least one planet for every star in the galaxy. So, you know, hundreds of billions of planets uh, in our galaxy alone. Uh, it, it's starting to really seem inconceivable that we could be alone. And of course, that the effect there is that people start to think, well, maybe UFOs could be alien after all. You know, if we're definitely not alone, then, then maybe we should start looking at this more seriously. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it's much the same as everywhere. I think there's probably a, a greater percentage, slightly, of people who would be completely dismissive of the subject, but there is a, a large uh, percentage as well who, who treat it seriously and who are very open-minded. Uh, and the press coverage, obviously, you know, this is a whole, whole other conversation, uh, but, but the press, you know, the press can report what it's allowed on the subject. You know, if I, for example, wanted to, well, you know, I, I, I submitted my my uh, article on Brandon, to uh, uh, which I wrote on the 6th of July, uh, to, to, I mean, about uh, 20 newspapers in the US and UK and Canada, and not one of them wanted it. Even the Roswell Daily Record turned it down, um, and I offered it to them for free, <laughs> in person, like mm-hmm. while on the phone. So we don't even, so we don't even want paying. And uh, they didn't even want it. And uh, you know, this was the this was the, the the newspaper that broke the story. This was on the 65th anniversary, and um, so it's a subject that that most people, regardless of government interference in the news media, most people won't touch with a barge pole anyway, because they just you know how to contextualise it, especially if you're treating it seriously. If I were to have written the story very in a very jokey fashion, they'd have probably accepted it. But when you treat it seriously, they don't really know what to make of it, and they think, well, oh, maybe this is a bit risky, or maybe it just seems. I don't know, people aren't going to like this and or, or respond to it in the right way. So they just leave it. They don't really know, really know what to do it or where to place it. Um, and that's the problem that, 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 you know, that we've had with the media for, for decades. I do think it's gradually getting better, um, uh, but there's still a great deal that needs to be done. And ultimately, there can never be anything really explosive on the subject, or really insightful, shall we say, um, in terms of analysis, because... Uh, there are choke points within the, within the news media, as there are in Hollywood. Uh, you do have government in, uh, influence in these institutions, um, as Carl Bernstein documented thoroughly with the CIA in in, uh, in the news media in, in America in uh, in the 70s, and that was from the 50s through to the 70s. It was completely infiltrated by the by the Central Intelligence Agency. The agency had 400 journalists working for for every branch of uh, American news media. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on, Robbie. It's great to talk to you. I love the website, uh, silverscreensaucers.com. And, of course, everybody can see the link. And I've been reposting a couple of your stories uh, that you've offered. And so people can go to my website and have links back to your site there also. But uh, it's been great talking to you. And really, you uh, this has been so insightful. You've really changed. Uh, you've made this Brandon thing much more complicated for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. Well, thanks very much uh, for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, I hope to talk to you again in the future. It is always so much fun to do an intercontinental interview with someone way out there. Just the technology is so cool. Anyway, uh, great to talk to Robbie and the website. I, it's silverscreensaucers.blogspot.com. You can find his site by either Googling Silver Screen Saucers, going to silverscreensaucers.blogspot.com, 
Or you could go to ufodailynews.com, and there's some stories there uh, that he has posted, and there are links back to him there. I just posted his story that he posted today on, on Facebook and on Twitter. So check it out. And, of course, the movies are so much fun you can imagine. Uh, and if you're into entertainment and movies and, and UFOs, then you're going to love his website. And uh, I'm so excited about his future projects. And definitely need to have a mom to talk more about UFOs in Hollywood because we take talk so much about Chase because it's such an interesting story. Anyway, it was great to have him on Thank you, Robbie. I forgot to mention that I was on Chasing UFOs. Well, I did mention that before, but uh, the episode came out, and there wasn't much of me in the show. But that's okay. And it is kind of funny because people keep asking me about, you know, the uh, if you saw the show, there was a Chinese lantern they got, and they played it up like everybody was freaking out and wondering what it was. And, and actually, it was quick. Somebody saw the red light, we flipped the camera, could see it was a Chinese lantern, done deal. So all of that getting excited was really these guys, we saw the military dropping some flares, and that's what they were getting all excited about. That's why at one point James goes, look, there's another one, you know, and of course there's only one Chinese lantern, so that part kind of uh, didn't fit completely. So that's how that all went down, and uh, but it was kind of cool because we did see a lot of jets and stuff, and that camera they had was incredible. But uh, Jason and I got cut. They didn't even use one line from Jason. I don't know if they even showed his face. Well, they did, I guess, when we were outside of the car, but uh, that's about it. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me at UFO Think Tank Radio. Be sure to visit UFODailyNews.com. Go cash in on the 25% off at the Cosmic Exploration Conference. It's going to be absolutely amazing. And you all have a wonderful evening. I will talk to you next week. People, enjoy my closed music, Island Maneuvers, from Two Earth Minutes. Adios, muchachos.